some of the clients that are farther down the road now are able to say, oh, we have a revenue shortfall in Q4. Well, as the general counsel, I can now say, hey, sales of our 2,000 biggest customers, these are the 200 where you could raise prices today under our contract. I can figure that out with the push of a button. Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Alec Gettel. Now, Alec has something a bit different today, actually. Often I'm speaking with the general counsel, chief legal officer. Alec doesn't hold that position, but he was a co-founder of Axiom, which I'm sure you'll all have heard about. I co-founded Axiom with his partner, Mark Harris, back in 2000. And mostly you will know that Axiom really was the global leader in specialised on-demand legal talent and really changed the entire industry or created one, certainly, the notion of on-demand legal talent, which certainly in the late 90s and early 2000s was was unheard of. So it's a fascinating discussion because Alex, not a lawyer, but he takes us through his journey, what he learned about himself and what he learned about, I suppose, dealing with the legal profession and, and some insights there. And just as interestingly, why he's chosen to do it all again with a recent spin-off from Axiom called Knowable. And uh, so he's the CFO at Knowable now, again, along with his co-founder, Mark Harris. So it's a, it's a fascinating discussion, a bit of a different perspective for today's episode, but a really interesting one. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Alec, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you on. This is going to be a great discussion. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Jim. Thrilled to be doing it. Thanks for asking me. Now, Alec, I'm going to get you to launch into the Alec Gattel story. Mm. And other than just setting the scene a little bit, which I will, I'm sure the audience will know that you, along with Mark Harris, founded Axiom some 20 years ago. So uh, one of the the most well-known brands in specialized on-demand legal uh, or lawyers. So tell us a little bit about the Alec Gattel story and we'll launch into some deep dive questions then. Sure, sounds good. Yeah, I'm happy to tell you my story. You might lose some listeners right at the right off the bat. No uh, chance but, of uh, that, Alec, let me tell <laughs> you. <laughs> they're, they're chomping it's a bit to listen. Sure, yeah. Well, I, so so this rarely comes up, but I actually, I grew up in New York City. My family was actually in the arts. Everybody was in theater and visual art. And I was yep. sort of, uh, I was the misfit because, you know, I like baseball and math and stuff like that. And they, yep. thought, they thought something was terribly wrong with me. <laughs> you know, actually, my early career was all in environmental work. Something I got interested in in high school. I did, a bunch, you know, I can tell you more about it, but I did a lot of sort of nonprofit government, that sort of thing all through high school, college. Yep. right after college. And uh, it dawned on me in sort of my mid-20s that being in government maybe wasn't the right destiny for me. And yep. I ended up going to business school really because I wanted to do startups. And, you know, Jim... Lewis, and startups was a thing back then. I, I mean, thinking about... We're, we're in the 90s now, aren't we? We're in the mid-90s. So you remember, this, this was uh, getting into the dot-com era. So it was... Right, okay, of course. Yep, yep. You know, I yep. was involved with a couple. You know, I went to business yep. school at Stanford. There's a lot of sort of startup-y stuff going on there. Yep. And, you know, you remember during the dot-com era, everybody and their cousin had a bad yep. idea for a website. And, I, you know, <laughs> because I actually did that kind of work, they were all coming, you know, twice a day, somebody would come to me with their terrible business idea. But um, but I knew Mark Harris socially and had a lot of respect for him. 
And he asked me out to breakfast and said, you know, I have some ideas about the legal industry and I'd love to kick them around with you. And I, you know, because I liked him, I thought I would do that. And we went to breakfast and he started out by talking about the economics of the law firm where he worked, Davis Polk, sort of big fancy law firm right. in New York City. And he described sort of how the money came in and how it went out. And I thought he's probably wrong. That was my takeaway. I was like, yep. my understanding of free market capitalism doesn't support the possibility of that kind of economic model sustaining itself in a world with a thousand different law firms. I, I just, you know, it, it didn't work. So, so tell us a little bit about what, what was it that, that you thought that, that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't, that doesn't work. Well, really it's the, the, the profit margins. I mean, you know, the profit margin, yeah. the 50% plus profit margins. Well, you didn't think that, that to build in the overhead that they were sustaining that didn't look like you really needed it. It was sort of yep. uh, impressionistic in its effect on your customer relationships, nothing more yep. than that. And it just didn't feel like it could work. And, and the more we talked about it, it's an information driven industry. It was, had almost no information technology. It was a talent-driven industry where all the talent that I knew was miserable, and they hated it. It just felt like it was kind of a perfect storm of, of business opportunity if it was the way he described it. And yep. I wasn't sure if I believed him or not at the beginning. Yeah. And you had no legal background at this, start, at this stage, so you, as, you didn't know anything about the legal industry, right? I really didn't, other than as a consumer. And so, But, but I loved Mark. Yep. And so we started yep. you know, meeting at my apartment every day and in my dining room and working on the business plan. And talking to lots of people. And, and that was the process that taught me that everything he was saying was right, both in terms of his diagnosis of the problem and where he was going, I thought, in terms of the solution to the problem. And so yep. you know, that was kind of how I got involved. Yep. So, so that was the early start. Okay. So so what I think you launched around is around about 2000 when you got Axiom going. Is that right? That's right. So we started working on it in the middle of 1999 and we closed our financing in the spring of 2000, just as the dot-com thing completely fell apart. So our timing was actually quite fortunate because this was at a time where two guys with no accomplishments and a business plan could raise millions of dollars with that yep. never existed before or since. And we kind of yep. benefited from that because we were able to put a bunch of capital in the bank that gave us time to experiment and try and fail and fail and fail yep. and eventually, you know, figure it out. And, and so t tell me a little bit about the lessons in those early years, because you are experimenting, you, you're finding your feet, what I call in the wilderness, kind of trying to feel around. Tell me yeah. about some of the learnings in those early years. Yeah, I think a third of it was really understanding the industry better. We were both early in our career. I was totally new yep. to it. He was relatively new to it. Uh, you know, really yep. understanding the language, what the motivations were of our customers, that sort of thing. A third of it was learning how to build a company at all. I'd done some of that and Mark really hadn't. And, you know, there's a lot to learn there, as you know. And the third yep. of it was the market timing problem of us sort yes. of envisioning a world that was really 10 years away and thinking it was six yep. months away and yep. having to adjust our expectations and our offer to something that people could actually buy today instead today, of saying yep. something that they thought was interesting for 10 years from now. And we that yeah. almost killed us, not figuring that out yeah. fast enough. And it typically does. If you, I think there's a whole lot of studies out there, which can be the best ideas in the world, but a huge factor in success is just market timing, maybe too early, too late, whatever it might. It's typically too early, yeah. and the challenge is typically actually surviving until the, the market matures or can catches up with whatever the brilliant idea is. And I think that's did, did, very true in general and twice as true in legal, especially then yep. when things were even were much more slow moving than they are even today. And so we were yep. imagining a world that exists today where you could have an online platform that put together a really talented, curated group of lawyers with clients who needed that kind of help. And you could provide a bunch of resources to make that connection happen in a supported way. And people would buy that. And we were completely wrong. There was no way in-house counsel were going to you know, pick their lawyer off a website. 
you know, that's not, back in 2000, back essentially. In 2000. Yep. Yep. Um, you had to build a brand and it was much more sort of hand to hand personal relationships. And so we had to, we basically took our entire first team that was 80% technology and had to completely flush it and go to 80% sort of services and hand to hand combat yes. going out and building relationships. Yeah. And, and so tell me how that, that changed, if you like, and the market maturity changed, let's say between those, you know, between those early days and, you know, and more recently, what, what, what were the, changes that made Axiom successful? Well, partly we were lucky to have staying power, I think. Yep. And so raise enough capital to... We had enough capital to make some mistakes yeah. and survive. Yep. I think we really benefited from some of Mark's particular peculiar characteristics of sort of discipline and message discipline focus. Like we didn't get distracted doing other things. And it would have been easy in the early days. You could make money doing headhunting. You could make money doing sort of temping, paralegals, that sort of thing. He was very disciplined early in his career. That was super helpful, I think. And we really tried to set a brand positioning that was really north of where we naturally belonged. Yep. (laughs) By borrowing the brands of all the people that we worked with and the fancy law firms they came from, that really helped us in the early days. And then you know, as you've seen, as we've all seen, the openness to innovation has just grown over this kind of 20 year period in a very sort of linear, non-exponential, yep. but linear, dependable way. And so people became more and more open to new ways of doing things. And we really kind of benefited from that. Yep. And what's your sense of where where the legal industry is today in terms of, I suppose, its openness yeah. to draw, to adopt and drive innovation? Is the market, for example, is it maturing more quickly or is it still reasonably linear, if you like, you know, from those early days in the 2000s and where we are today? What, what do you think? You know, I'd have to say somewhere in between. I, I mean, the, yeah. the progress is very encouraging and exciting. And yep. there's an expectation of innovation now. There, that did not exist before. You know, you're expected to be trying new things and finding ways to do stuff better. And people are trying I think the success rate still isn't as high as it is in other parts of the global economy because there just isn't as much of emotion yet around procurement and technology and how do we integrate these pieces. And, you know, we're still getting better, I think, in this industry, which is great for us as entrepreneurs. It means lots of opportunity if you can be patient enough. But I'd say, you know, I I, I still don't think we're kind of caught up with the rest of the economy, but we're, you know, we're making a lot of strides. We used to say at Axiom, we were the, we were the fastest turtle in the terrarium. That was our, (laughs) that was how we succeeded. Uh, I, I, I like that. I, I, I like that. Tell us a little bit about. Well, actually, I do want to jump into Knowable, which is I don't know how you get into another startup. I, I, I tell you what, I think to myself, I'm never going back there to those early days. But you've done that. Before we dive into that, what, what are the? Give me the top two or three key learnings for yourself and what you learnt about yourself over the last twenty years of building the Axiom business. And then I want to kind of dovetail that into you know how that's going to. Uh, translate into your time now as the CFO of Knowable. And I'll get you to tell the audience a little bit about Knowable too. But tell me about that, those learnings and what you think, key lessons for you, perhaps what surprised yourself a little bit Uh about yourself. And then dovetailing that, as I said, into your time now with Knowable. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, a lot of it is about figuring out what you're good at and figuring out what you're not good at and how to get yep. better at the things you're bad at, how to double down on your strengths. Yep. You know, I kind of came into this thinking that I was sort of a mathy person. I was, a, you know, a little bit more sort of operational engineering oriented, uh, naturally. Yep. 
And it turned out that wasn't my spike at all as, a, as an entrepreneur. Um, I'm much more on the people side, uh, attracting and retaining great people, building culture. That turns out to be what I love and what I'm much more natural at. And I think, you know, we made plenty of mistakes at Axiom, but the things we did right, we really had a great culture there. We attracted really outstanding talent way above anything that we deserved at any point yeah. in the journey. And I put a lot of energy into that. That was, that's something I spent a lot of time thinking about and think, you know, maybe it's a spike for me. I'm not a great strategist. I have focus issues. You know, Mark is, is so much more disciplined and so much clearer headed about this thing, this one thing, this is the thing. This is the thing that really matters, this. and we are not going to waste energy on other stuff. Meanwhile, every time yep. I see revenue, I go running off in a new direction. That's, yeah. my, that's my nature. So <laughs> that's the, really that wanted... is the numbers. That is the numbers bit coming into it. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, but and, yep. you know, so we yep. have a real sort of complementarity there, and I've learned a lot of that from him. He's much better at saying no, you know, uh, which is you know, it's kind of funny that I'm a CFO. I'm very off brand for a CFO. Yep. But, um, yep. Yeah, it's it's funny. Certainly the culture resonates a lot with me. I've just seen, I think we've all seen the power of culture and having great people on board and how, I mean, that to me, is that's the rocket fuel. Um, that And if you don't have that, I don't care how good your idea is or how good you think you are at execution, it generally falls in a heap. So Very, very hard to fix. You know, yep. It's such a privilege. It's one of the great things about startups is that it's yep. a privilege to get to imagine it and try to build it the way you imagine it try, and trying to come in somewhere and fix something later is just that's not a fun job it's hard and and certainly in a leadership position i just think to myself if there's one skill i could choose above anything else in the world it would be the ability to hire great talent and then actually have the uh, I suppose the skills to be able to motivate and drive and create opportunity. If you can do that, yeah. and to all the young listeners out there, if you can learn how to do, yeah. really do that early in your career, be able to pick, attach yourself to, motivate real other talented people. That is the stuff that um, makes all, all the difference. Well, well from a business perspective, it's where all the leverage is, right? I mean, that's yeah. how, you, but, and, and an incredibly wonderful coincidence, it's also where all the satisfaction is. Like yeah. the, the part that matters in the end is the, you know, my best friends mostly come from my startups. I love these people. Yeah. And, you know, those relationships, the most important relationships in my life, many of them. Yeah. And it's, you know, incredibly satisfying. So it's, you know, it's worth the investment and it obviously critical to, yeah. And the impact you see, not just the business impact, of course, it, it's the personal relationships, it's the creation of careers and, you know, talk about being able to create white space around people so that they can grow into that white space and, you know, beyond their own skin, beyond whatever they believe they could do. And if you can create that kind of environment, as I said, that's that's the stuff of rocket fuel yeah. um, for any organization. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about now Knowable. Uh, you're the CFO. I know you split off, I think it was a couple of years ago. Right. Tell us about that, what the goals are there, what Knowable actually does and what you're, I suppose, what you're hoping to achieve over the course of the next, this yeah. part of your journey at least. Sure. Yeah, happy to. So, so you know, I'm obviously I'm deeply, deeply in love with it and obsessed with it. So, a lot, you know, it's uh, hard to even organize my thoughts. But what Knowable, yeah. um, you know, the mission we're on is about helping companies understand what they've agreed to in their contracts. A pretty simple yep. thing. And for, for people on this call, that makes immediate sense. For people not for people who aren't in yep. this space, yep. it's like, is that a problem? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it turns out it's a really big and actually quite difficult problem and quite a valuable problem to solve. You know, so our clients, yep. you know, they tend to have they could have twenty thousand contracts, they might have five hundred thousand or a million. 
they can barely find them often they can't and there's really yep. almost no way for them to figure out what they've agreed to and what their yep. entitlements are and what their obligations are and what their risks are and on a day-to-day basis it's really debilitating yep. and and costly and risky but it also leaves an incredible opportunity cost on the table yep. you have all these businesses that are all trying to be data driven and you know it's an obsession and in most of the organization they are and we believe that the most important data in a lot of these enterprises is actually in the, the most important data is in their contracts. Yeah. It's every relationship with every customer, with every supplier, with every employee, all that information is there and they really can't access it for all kinds of reasons. And so solving that problem is what the business is about. We started doing it. We sort of backed in it, into it at Axiom being invited by clients to solve some of these problems on sort of a project basis. Yep. And in the process of doing that, we started investing in doing it better, which is much harder than we thought it would be yep. <laughs> to this day. Always is. <laughs> yep. Yep. But more to the point, we started to understand the scale and the, and the shape of the opportunity here. And, the, you know, so the, the fundamental premise is that there's no way seven years from now that the biggest companies in the world don't know what they've agreed to in yeah. their contract. But we've yep. been suffering in that position, in this kind of, you know, learned helplessness position around our contracts for 50 years. And, and so this is going to be the moment, we believe, where that's going to change. So the point of knowable is to, you know, hopefully I, I help identify that problem. Yeah figure out how to solve it and, and be leaders in solving it. It's funny. When you just listen to you, it's and like with great a number of great ideas, it's such an obvious problem. Mm. Every company, every substantial company in the world out there will have tens, hundreds, if not thousands of contracts. Mm. And nine times out of ten, they'll be filed away as PDF documents. Some will be 10, some will be 1,000, you know, 100 pages and complicated. And you're right, you have got really, there's not much out there right now to help you understand what the company has agreed to, what obligations are coming up, what have passed, who's actually got responsibility for them. Thinking about that, that's an enormous opportunity, not a huge problem, but an enormous opportunity. Yeah, well, that, that, that's certainly how we see it. And it, it's even worse than what you described. I mean, you know, we go into these companies. And these are great companies, great law departments, very smart people. Yep. And, you know, if you, they're often asked, the questions come to the law department often. You yep. know, hey, do we have the right to do this under our contract? And this begins this crazy odyssey. Yeah. You know, it's like, I found the MSA, but there were three copies, and I don't know which one is the real one. None of them are signed. And, and I think there, there are at least four amendments that I could find, but there are probably three other amendments. And one of the amendments is in Portuguese. <laughs> and I don't know what's active and what's inactive. And I tried to email the person who negotiated this and she left the company two years. You know, it's just, they go, it's like weeks past. So they try to figure out these basic things. And, you know, that's sort of the threshold problem. But the, the, the really exciting thing, and this is the problem of solving a problem that's a few years from now as opposed to today. Today's problem is just that, right? Can I just answer a basic question and yep. perform my obligations? Yep. But, you know, some of the clients that are farther down the road now are able to say, oh, we have a revenue shortfall in Q4. Well, as the general counsel, I can now say, hey, sales of our 2,000 biggest customers, these are the 200 where you could raise prices today under our contract. I can figure that out with the push of a button, right? It's like like mostly our contracts say you can't raise prices until we renew the contract. But in these 200, for one reason or another, there's a different rule, but when you can raise prices, here they are. And so you should go look at these if you're, you know, it's so how, like wow. So how about that as an example of the in-house team adding real value to the businesses that they're supporting rather than being seen just as you know, the, the cost center or the no center or whatever exactly it is. It. That, that, I, we, yeah. And so this is why Mark and I 
really fell in love with this. We, it's 50 yep. years the general counsel has been on defense to the extent there's even been a general counsel, but yep. there, yep. you know, it's, it's a, it's a cost center. It's about, they only report to the CEO about risk and reducing costs. And yep. that's all they talk about to the board. Yep. They never get to be on offensive footports on the board and contribute to, Hey, here's what I'm doing for a big strategic transformation agenda. Here's what I'm doing for our profit goal. And that lack of balance has really limited the experience of being a general counsel to being a legal advisor and not being a business leader. Yep. And it's, it's been that way. And, you know, even at Axiom, where we felt like we were doing something that was strategic, it couldn't solve that problem. No, and this was the first thing we ever yep. saw that, you know, can put them on the yeah. front foot. So. Well, I've got to tell you, Alec, I can imagine all the GCs listening out there, I can imagine their reaction right now. If I was a GC out there listening to that, I would be thinking to myself, He's absolutely right. There's very little I can do to actually make an impact. That kind of an impact, that kind of a forward-looking impact that'll you know affect the bottom line. That's proactive. That that is really unique. Um, so how do you even, without getting into the detail, of course? Look, now let me step back. I asked you what are the, some of the lessons that you've learned that that you're going to bring to this current experience? Like for example, what you're not going to do now what you did before or, or or anything else that comes to mind. What are the what are some of the um, big lessons you've learned in the past that you're going to bring to, to Knowable now? And if, sorry, and one other thing, and if you can relate it to what you've learned in the legal industry, I suppose, whether it's the pace of change, whether it's the way you need to pitch the GCs, what is it yeah. Yeah, that, that, that you've really brought to the Knowable venture now or that you're bringing? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to, give you my thoughts on that. And then, you know, be struck with my lightning. Something terrible will happen. <laughs> you're wrong about all those things. So we will see. Um, yep. But I would say, and I, I touched on some of these themes earlier, but number one is this issue of discipline. Like we, we have the confidence at this stage in our careers to feel like we're certain this is yeah, the right is. thing to invest in. Yep. And you are not going to distract us. Like nothing yep. in the market is going to distract us. This is the piece this of territory we want to own. Yep. And we're not going to do anything else. That, yep. that would be number one. Number two would be on this market timing issue. Yep. We went, you know, we made the same mistake, honestly, because when we first started talking to general counsels and legal operators about this, we spent a lot of time talking about this kind of all the stuff you could do with this data and how it could change the whole position of of the law department and how valuable this data was. But people have a there's a predecessor problem they've really got to solve first, which is just, I need to get my contracts in order and know what's active and organize them into families so that when I see a contract, I know that I have all the bits and pieces that define the whole, you know, we got to do this basic stuff first. And so we had to go back and create a new version of the product that we call essentials, which was like, this is the first step. Yep. And let's not, and, and now we spend a lot of time telling clients, we're not, do, don't do that other stuff yet. Yeah. Get this done first and then you'll do the other stuff better. So that kind of market matching the product to the moment in the market. Yeah. Yeah. And the presumably too, like the foundational stuff you're going to need anyway, before you get to closer to the future state or the vision state. Is 100%. that right? And, and it turns out that you can be much, you can do it much more efficiently because it's not easy to get data out of contracts. They're deliberately yep. ambiguous. Yep. You know, they really resist automation. And so there's a, there's a human element to figuring out what these contracts say. So you want to just do what you need to do. You want to do stuff that has ROI attached to it. Yep. You don't want to boil the ocean. And when you've done the basics and you know what you've got, it's much easier to say, let's yep. start with this. We care about revenue leakage right now. Yep. This is the data we need. We need it from these contracts. And then you can sort of solve problems stepwise instead of kind of 
on a, being on a fishing expedition. So yep. those are the things we've learned so far. And then the last thing, of course, would be patience. I mean, the sales cycles are long, uh, yep. except for you and your company for some reason. I don't know if you guys are going so fast. <laughs> yes, you're, too, you're wrong and too kind. So there you go. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there are a lot of stakeholders in these processes. It's yep. not, you know, some companies legal really owns contracts, but a lot of these enterprises, it's like, well, actually procurement owns contracts, yep. supply side contracts, but yep. we own the, you know, or it's a hybrid or... And so yep. you know, there are a lot of bases to touch and, and that can slow things down. Yep. So let me ask you, what advice would you give then? I'm going to ask you to put different hats on, okay? Uh, I'm going to ask you to put the GC hat on, let's say the legal ops hat on, and let's say a law firm hat. What advice, and related to, I suppose, in part the problem you're looking to solve, what advice would you give to each of those? Let, let, let's start with the GC first. I'm afraid this will be a little, it's hard not to be salesy and yeah. answer that question because, yeah. you know, my answer is self-serving. But I think that a lot of the industry has solved the wrong problem first when it comes to contracts. Yeah. And so there's been a lot of investment in these CLM systems, which are very good. And, and, and the purpose of those systems is a very good purpose, which is to shorten the time to deal closure, you know, yeah. to, to run a process that's better organized, more disciplined and gets to a faster conclusion. Yep. It's a much harder problem to solve because it's a workflow problem that involves human beings. Yeah. Often this including salespeople. These are very hard cats to herd. Yep. And there's it's a much longer and more difficult integration. Our argument is 90% of your revenue is in your existing contracts. 90% of your cost is in your existing contracts, 90% of your risk. And in fact, your new contracts, two out of three times, refer to your existing contracts. Yeah. And it's a much easier problem to solve, so, understanding yep. what's in your existing, you know, it, this is something you can do in a quarter, yep. you know, instead of 18 months. And so our message to the market is we really encourage people to do this first. Um, and it really helps, we think, with the CLM part of the process, which we which we think absolutely needs to be done. And we think there are really good products out there to do it, which is why we don't do it. Yep. yep. So that would be a thing for GCs. The other thing is just when you're doing technology acquisition, do it in steps, right? Don't, you know, basically huge integrations. The rest of the economy figured out that that didn't work in like the 80s and 90s. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and, and I think I've seen that really, one. I have to say, yeah. I've seen that one too. And the yeah. and the focus on, oh, it's got to integrate with everything that we do. Yeah. And the time that takes, 12 months, 24 months to put that integration together. And then crickets, nobody uses it. Nobody does anything. There was a huge cost. Uh, yeah. Sorry, so sorry to call that out, but I've seen that so many times, and I don't yeah. understand the. I think the obsession on that one is it's just got to fit perfectly with everything that we've got right now. So it's there's this kind of false nirvana out there of it's just it's it becomes seamless once it's integrated. Right, and the thing is, you can do more targeted things that are seamlessly that's, that's yep. seamless. Yep. It's just hard to do something that's kind of global, covering your whole landscape. It's yep. also seamless with everything else. That's just really black belt stuff, and legal's not there yet. They've yeah. hardly started buying technology. So, you know, to extend that a little farther, our, you know, we're, we're not in the CLM business, and you probably had some people on who are who, who may have a better perspective on this. But we've also seen a lot of clients who have tried to do a single CLM solution across an entire large enterprise. Yeah. And the, the fact is you have very different workflow yeah, on the procurement each. side than you do on the commercial side than you do somewhere else. And those workflows require their own processes and their own tools that are set up for those. And that's okay. They don't all have to be the same. And people are wasting literally years trying to get everybody onto the same, same page, yeah. platform and define the same, you know, exception policies. And it's just, you know, that's, I don't think that's a good use of time. 
Yeah. All right. What about the the law firm perspective? Yeah. Is there anything that you would say to the managing partner of a law firm, or you know, to to the to, to the leadership, how they might be helping? Because they're the ones creating contracts. Or sorry, they're typically involved. Not always, but typically involved mm-hmm. in um, helping create the contracts. Anything um, that that you you'd say to to that section, I suppose, of the industry? I'm not sure I have as clear a message there yeah. because, you know, most of the law firms, although they negotiate, they help negotiate, particularly, you know, really high profile contracts, yep. novel contracts, yep. very complex ones, those will get sent to a law firm. But the law firm tends to think we don't own those things. We yep. negotiate them and then they go back into the company. Yep. So they don't really have much of a hand in this part yep. of the business. But there's a larger question about what is technology going to mean for, you know, I mean, it's a huge question, but yep. for, for how they work and where their value yep. is. Well, actually, let's talk a little bit about that because one thing that has, that I've asked myself about and I have an answer, but you've got all these, you've got these fantastic law firms. Out there. Let's call it the AM, uh, AMLAW 200. Okay. Yep. Incredibly bright people, all very driven, all very successful, all separately trying to solve a number of kind of technology problems. How does how do you see that environment and, and, and very little collaboration between, let's say, the law firms or yeah, the law firms and their, their clients, sometimes there's collaboration there, but it just seems hugely inefficient to me. I don't necessarily have an answer there, but there are so many technology issues out there or uh, and everyone's trying to solve them separately. What, what, what do you think about Have you got any thoughts around that? Honestly, just I've made the exact same observation. And it's right. a very hard problem to solve because there's there are competitive reasons why they don't collaborate together to solve some of these problems. And that's a hard thing to overcome. But it yep. seems like a really inefficient way for them to each be trying to. It does, doesn't know, it? And, and many of them are, I mean, uh, you know, most of them are going to do this through partnerships as opposed to building things in house, which is probably the right answer. And we're starting to have our first couple law firm partnerships as right. well. Way, way too early to declare success on any of those. But it, it actually, we never could figure out how to partner with law firms. And right. You know, in the abstract, it could make some sense, but we could never, we could never make it work. Have you seen any shift? Because I have seen in the past lots of law firms still trying to build internally technology solutions. Have you seen that shift more recently, where law firms are looking, you know, looking to move away from that internal build? You know, I don't know. I have a bias in answering that because yep. I would only talk to the ones who want to partner, and I wouldn't know yep. the ones who are building themselves. So I'm not sure I know the answer. But I do think there are some out there that are, you know, they're exper- the fact that and you and I know that you know this better than anybody, but law firms are just made up of individuals, many of whom are very sort of innovative yep. and, you know, technology oriented and forward looking and want to do cool stuff. And so, yep. you know, there are no big law firms that don't have a bunch of people doing it, you know, trying interesting things. But yep. it's just it's a, it's the problem. It's just, you know, there's the sort of non-hierarchical nature of the firms themselves makes yeah. it that much harder. And of course, it, the capital structure and the difficulty of making investment. I mean, they're, the, it's a really tough spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th- that framework makes it pretty, I think, pretty close to impossible to get, let's say, collaboration across the industry. I think ultimately it does drive to my vision of that part of the world is uh, best of breed that ultimately law firms and and clients will identify that they should be going best of breed and that there's no point trying to replicate or build internally when they're focused on 100 things, but the best breed out there is focused on one and they're doing it 
they're doing it the best and they're actually doing it with the all of the learnings of the industry because they're 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 let's say leading the market 100%. that's pretty hard to beat yeah that's certainly our message when yeah. we're having these partnership conversations is yeah this is really hard stuff you don't want to try to figure this out on your own but they, most of them in our particular space aren't trying to figure yeah. it out now alec of course all the listeners out there are thinking these guys are biased because and in a sense we are because sure. but hopefully it comes from not not a bias but uh but learnings and uh certainly for me never really i don't think i've come across a single example where either within a law firm or within a in a, a corporate environment, I've seen a, an in-house build, and I've said that is the best breed, best of breed I've ever seen right. in that particular space. I don't, I don't think it's happened before. It's, yeah, it seems very hard. It would be very hard for them to do that. Yep. All that said, you know, as Axiom started to grow, and I would have conversations like these, people would say, "What is this all going to mean for law firms? Is this, is this, you know, the the emergence of ALSPs and of technology and." Yep. You know, a lot of people were like, well, it's going to be really hard for law firms or, you know, you're just going to have this kind of separation where you have these sort of elite law firms who do these kinds of things and you have these kind of niche law firms, but you won't have, and none of that's turned out to be true. No. I don't think. It's funny. And I've said <laughs> and on I this. I kind of believed it and it didn't. So, no. And I've know. said on this podcast before that never bet against law firms. Yeah. Every time someone has predicted, oh, this is going to, you know, this is going to slash profit margins, this is going to reduce the number of, it, it actually never happens. In fact, it, even, when the pandemic was looming and everyone was predicting, oh, well, the opposite ha actually happened. Yes. <laughs> uh, the opposite, yeah. opposite has happened. The costs have been yeah. slashed and profits have, have increased. So, yeah. Well, uh, so you know, yeah, that's my lesson. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> where we started talking about when my first conversation with Mark and not not believing that the the kind of economic model was sustainable and being so wrong about it is still true today. Yeah, yeah, co correct. That, that, that is right, isn't it? And that was that's 20 odd years ago. A slight shift away. I can see you've got a passion and you've stayed connected with the clean energy industry. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, another dangerous topic. Yeah. Go on some, <laughs> some length. But yeah, I got interested in this stuff early in my life. You know, I took a year off after high school and worked at an advocacy organization in Washington. I, I wrote my undergrad thesis on climate change in 1990, you know. Is that right? But, yeah. And uh, uh, you, you so, got to pull that out and post that out and, and send that out to the to the world. A 1990 climate change thesis. That is that is a sensation. It was about it was trying to predict how international cooperation would evolve on that issue by looking right. back at at CFCs and at yep. international waste trade and, you know, it, it wasn't that good. But yeah. <laughs> at least I was on the right topic. <laughs> yep, yep. And ahead of your time, let me tell you. Yeah, maybe. Yep. So, and, and then, you know, I worked in nonprofits, that sort of thing. So I, and, and then I went to business school and I really thought I would do clean tech startups. And I have done some of that. Yep. Um, and then I got caught up with Mark and this was just too exciting. And yep. know, so that's, so, uh, but I still, I left Axiom for about six or seven years and started a residential solar rooftop solar company. Right. With a couple other people. So that was another sort of startup experience. And that company, you know, got to a thousand people and, you know, wow. and yeah, it was, it actually had an unhappy end in the U.S. It's done well in Europe. And, um, and there's actually a, now I'm involved with uh, sort of like a Phoenix that came out of that a company called Open Solar that's based in Australia. Right. So I spent a lot of time on the phone to Australia. You're not the only person. Yeah. <laughs> but I, anyway, th but fundamentally I'm, I'm obsessed with solar. I think solar is going to be the energy infrastructure of all of human civilization. And yep. it's going to happen in our lifetimes. And it's going to be a really exciting thing. It's an exciting thing to be a part of now. It's just going to get more exciting. And so anyway, that's, you know, yep. yes, I could spend time on that. And tell me about just the way you allocate your time. How do you actually, 
you know, you're thinking about your history, thinking about the, your time with Noble, time and clean energy. Well, how do you prioritize? I'd love to know. I, I, can, I can barely focus on one thing. T- tell me how you do that. Well, yeah. And I do have focus issues and I, I wouldn't claim <laughs> to have solved this yep. problem, but I've always been a serial entrepreneur, not a parallel entrepreneur. Right. And so Noble is my job and that's what I do all day. Yep. You know, open solar is a thing I'm fascinated by and I'm on the board of and on the weekend I talk to them and, you know, but basically I, 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 I kind of have to do one thing at a time. Yeah. Just, just like just like most people. Yeah. And so I have a few more side hustles, and I think that you know that has that has domestic costs. Although I have great, you know, I mean, like super happy family life, but it, you know, it's a lot to balance, and they have to be very tolerant, which they fortunately have. Been. Are they patient and to- tolerant with you, Alec? Your family? Yes, uh, like unduly tolerant. They're in a yes. So I've been I've been very lucky that way. Yeah, it's funny. Behind every great entrepreneur and success story, there is usually unduly tolerant people, yeah, family right. members, and, and that's <laughs> that's part of the secret to the success. Yeah. A couple of questions to to round out, Alec. Advice to your twenty five year old self. Well, you know, I think back to specifically what I was thinking at twenty five. You know, and business is much more dramatic than I thought it was going to be. That would be yeah. one. I thought business was. I was afraid it was going to be boring, um, you know, and it's just like, right. it's, it's like an adventure movie. It's like these crazy things happen every day. That would be one. Yep. So prepare yourself for that. Dispense with pretense yep. and artifice. I thought business people were like John D. Rockefeller and everybody sort of had to behave a certain way. And there was a little more about that back then, yep. but not as much as I thought. And it's completely gone now. And yep. I think if, if I had accelerated to more my authentic self faster, I would have been much happier and wasted a lot less energy trying to be somebody. Someone else. Really uh, I, actually, I, I love that accelerating to your authentic self. I, I might use that quote as mine, actually. Sometimes, uh-huh. but that, yeah, feel free. I, 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 I love that. Yeah, so those would be some, and and I think I didn't know yet what some of my weaknesses were, and it, if somebody could have told me then, that would have saved me a lot of time too. It took me a couple cycles to learn how to say no, how to shed not great people from a company. Yep. <laughs> some of these things that are really. Really, yep. really important. Make you so much better, and it took me a while to learn to do those things. Uh, and if I could have learned that earlier, that would have been that would have been great. And then, you know, I didn't. I was overly respectful. I think sometimes when I felt like I was talking to somebody who was more accomplished than I was. Right. My my friend and partner Mark never had that. He felt like right. a peer. He was. He thought he was a peer with the Queen of England when we were thirty years old. You know. <laughs> And and it was an amazingly powerful tool. And he and and he deserved that respect. He's a very bright guy. He asks great questions. He's a great listener and a great learner. Yeah. You know? And so it worked. Whereas I was uh, so busy trying to be respectful that I often didn't make as much progress as I could have. It's, it's funny. It's kind of consistent that I, I just listened to, uh, we released a, a podcast episode, I think just yesterday with Tom O'Neill, um, who's currently with Denneron Block and who's formerly the GC at Exxon. He talked about actually, he talked about, looking back and not voicing his position when he clearly had the opportunity to. It's kind of almost expected of him to, but he just chose to defer. And when looking back on that, and, and I think that's there's a bit of a theme there for what you're saying too, that we feel sometimes it's not our place or, or we're not quite qualified to express a view and an opinion or what we really think. And on reflection, thinking actually we were, or that's what was expected, or that was probably just the right, the right thing at the time to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's a very present dynamic in sales. Yeah. And, and, and all, everything about entrepreneurship is sales. And so if you don't 
know that you need to be your sort of best self and be a peer with the person you're talking to, then you're not going to be as effective as you could be. You know, I think I missed a fair number of opportunities because of that. And, um, you know, Mark was never afraid to say, you know, I'm not sure you're thinking about that right. And let me ask you, have you thought about this? This, And I wasn't ready to do that yet early in my career. And, you know, it's it's, it's too bad. Interesting. Alec, is there anything that keeps you up at night now? A lot less than in the past. Yep. I feel pretty good. Noble's in a bit of a Goldilocks moment because, and you, you, this may sound familiar to you, but you know, in the early days of a startup, there's so much uncertainty. Yep. You know, and you're fueled by hope, but you're also like, there's probably going to fail, right? That's yep. just the math. Yep. And then later, after you've accomplished something, then you're afraid of disappointing everybody. Yeah. Right? I mean, now everybody thinks you got something, and all you can do is screw it up. But there's a moment <laughs> in the middle where you're like. I think we got this figured out, that's, but that's nobody right. really realized it yet. And I think, I hope that we're in that place. It feels like we're in that place. And so I'm having a great time. Nice, now. nice. Well, one final question, actually two parts. What are you most proud of professionally and personally? Uh, professionally, I think it would be the culture at Axiom, the culture at Sungevity, my solar business. I feel like they were really unusually good places. Yep. Very authentic, transparent places with real grown-ups in them. Yep. And people learned a lot being there and that would be it, I would think. Yep. And personally, you know, I, I just, I mean, this is awfully personal, but I mean, I, I really like, I, I just got super lucky with this family that we've built yep. and we just really love each other. And, you know, I, we all have lived in the world and we know that that's pretty rare. And so I, I'm you know, feeling really yep. grateful. About uh, not surprising c- common theme there, the cultural bit with Axiom, it's the people and of course the family, you know, it's, it, it, it's the people around you. So that typically resonates. Uh, with everyone I speak to, that's where pride comes, whether it's personal or professional. Yep, 100%. Yep. Alec Gattel, fantastic speaking to you. Thanks so much for joining me. I've had an absolute blast. Me too. Thanks, Jim. Love doing it. Fantastic. Bye-bye for now. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.